Hello everyone, this is Saqib welcoming you to Tennis with an Accent, uh, produced in collaboration by our friends at Red Circle. Uh, today we have a guest who really doesn't need any introduction, and I'm definitely not qualified, so I won't even waste any time. It's Darren Cahill, uh, ESPN broadcaster, a legendary coach of Andre Agassi, Leighton Hughes, Simona Halep, and, and a former player. Welcome, Darren, to the show. Yeah, good morning. How are you? I'm super excited. Uh, you know, usually I've, I've been doing this for two years, but anytime right. I hear a voice like you, I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. <laughs> no, so, okay, good stuff. Looking forward to it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we have a loose agenda, like I mentioned to you before, to the lead up. Mm -hmm. uh, the main conversation is, of course, revolving around the Roland Garros, which starts on Sunday. And uh, we have a few questions uh, that our team came up with uh, for tennis governance. But I'll yep. start with you, the player. Uh, so my initial days from following tennis are in India, and we used to get very limited access. And I remember, <laughs> as a young boy, you ruined it for me by beating Boris Becker in 1988. And I didn't even have to oh, Google no. this. It was in my Sorry memory. Sorry about that. No, no, I mean, uh, I'm a fan of your commentary, <laughs> but yeah, that was then. So, and then the other match I saw was when you took out Richard Krejcik at 94 in Wimbledon, which is, again, I think your last yeah. match. So yeah. as a player, I mean, how do you look back to those times, and uh, uh, I don't want to use uh, uh, a word like, you know, like a regret, because I know you had some tough time with injuries, but how do you look yeah. back uh, at your playing days? No, I don't look back with any regret. I think that, you know, I came from an Australian rules football family in Australia, so the fact that I was playing tennis in the first place was a little bit weird for, for my family, because nobody in my family was playing tennis, so with such a famous football player and my father, it was kind of unusual that I gravitated towards tennis and I made a little bit of a late start. So just playing professionally for me, I still remember the first time I received my first ATP point in Austria when I came through the pre-qualifying and qualifying of a satellite event. The last tour, I'd played 11 weeks in a row overseas, had not won a singles match, it's really struggled and finally got through qualies and got my first ever ATP point and, and it was I remember it like yesterday. It was the most magical day ever. And then I jumped on a plane and came home. And it, it felt like I'd won Wimbledon arriving back in Adelaide to be professionally ranked. It was an amazing feeling. So I remember all those moments. I remember the losses. I remember the wins. I had a couple of good ones, which was, was, ter was, was terrific. But in the end, you know, my career was cut a little bit short. But another door opened with coaching. So it all worked out for the best. So that's a very uh, normal segue because... Uh a lot of the younger generation of tennis, even, you know, people don't remember uh, players from, like, say, even two generations ago. So everybody knows you're such a household name in America. You're coaching, you're commentary. So uh, was that a natural segue after you, you know, uh, you stopped playing? How, how did those opportunities line up? I know you were coaching Hewitt six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. So yep. how, how did that progress? Well, I actually started working with Leighton when he was about 12 years of age. He had his technical coach in Australia, Peter Smith, who he was working with, and I was just off the tour. So at any chance possible, the Hewitts would send Leighton over and I'd get on the court and, and play with him and sort of teach him more the structure of what shot to play from what part of the court and more a game style than it was an actual coaching style. So I did that for about six or seven years as he was going up through the ranks. And as everybody knows, he made a spectacular entry into the professional ranks winning Adelaide at 16 years of age but you might remember if you're from India you might remember me in between that actually I did a little bit of TV commentary for Star Sports with VJ Armitage can you remember those days uh, yeah I, I definitely recall those uh, prime sports and star sports that's the time yeah. tennis was brought to India 
Yep. Yeah, so that was kind of my transition from the playing day straight to commentating with VJ, who was a huge character and obviously massive in India as well. You know, he would welcome us to the show. So and so is on the court. The score is two one. Then he'd take off his shoes and put his feet up on the desk and start reading a newspaper for about five or seven minutes. So I got a really <laughs> good introduction into into actually commentating because I had to do most of the work. And then uh, when the two games are over, it was three two three two, and he'd go game Federer three two. We'll see you after the break. <laughs> so it was perfect for me. I was thrown into the fire and. He was an incredible guy and he put his arm around me and taught me a lot with the commentary side of things in the early days. But that's how I sort of segued from playing days being cut a little bit short to jumping into the commentary booth to getting onto the court with Leighton Hewitt. And then from there, it was more of a, a natural transition to being asked to go on the tour full time with him. Hmm. So and again, you know, uh, between Agassi and Hewitt, uh, there's a famous uh, story that sometimes, uh, you know, you get to read that you were almost Marat Safin's coach. So... Uh, if you look back at that episode, yeah. uh, what happened if you want to talk about it a little bit? That's my wife. <laughs> so, <laughs> and after I finished with Leighton in 2001, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. So in 2002, I was doing a little bit of commentary, just some guest commentary for Channel 7 and just having a look around as to what I was going to do next. And I had an offer from an approach from Marat's agent and my wife was all keyed up about it. She'd already been going to the Australian Open with her friends for about five or six years and they buy their tickets and they go out to the outside courts and they watch their favourite players and lo and behold, all they were doing was following around Marat Safin. So when I came back to the hotel and told her that I was speaking to the manager of Marat Safin, or she was doing cartwheels, uh, <laughs> calling him the big sexy Russian and couldn't wait, you've got to take that job. And so as things progressed throughout the course of the week, he ended up making the final. He lost to Thomas Johansson in the final, and my wife was still pumped up that I was a good chance to, to take on that job. And then I got the call from Agassi. So it's a long story, but in the end, Andre kind of talked me into taking the job with him. I had to call up Marat's manager. The, the job wasn't offered to me. It was more just still going down the path of whether or not I'd be interested. And I called up Marat's ma manager and said, hey, listen, I'm not going to be able to do this because I've had a job offer a, a real job offer from another player and he mm -hmm. said who's the other player and I said oh, it's Andre Agassi and he goes oh does he need a manager I'll come with you <laughs> so it was pretty funny actually and he took it really well and uh, I saw him at the next few years actually and uh, he, he's a good guy and uh, who knows what would have happened maybe I would have been with Marat a month and uh, would have got booted back to Australia or maybe it would have been successful you never know but the five or six years that I spent with Andre were unforgettable yeah I mean th those are like uh uh, stuff of legend, you know, like we consumed tennis through ESPN and we saw you in his yeah. booth and then you brought that that kind of knowledge to the commentary booth. So, yeah, that, that stuff is very well documented. I'm just trying to touch upon stuff that you read and you, you seldom get a chance yeah. to, you know, exchange conversation with a, with, you know, with a bloke like yourself. So, so another I thing... I must say, though, my wife was okay once we got across to San Francisco and we walked into his Tiburon house <laughs> and we were we were both pretty nervous actually because you're walking into a house and at that stage there were 29 singles Grand Slam trophies in that house with 22 from Steffi Graf and seven from Agassi and as we're walking in we're a little bit intimidated about the whole situation and she's still thinking ah maybe Safin would have been the better go and we walked into his beautiful house and Andre and Steph couldn't have been more hospitable and they yeah. took us across to the place where we were sleeping. We had a little nine-month-old nine boy as well. And so we go into the bedroom and there's a like a little creche and playground set up for him and uh, Andre's got a margarita there and he's out cooking steaks in the barbecue and we've got beers going, we've got pe people coming over, guests coming over. And 
from our bedroom, we're looking over from one windows, the Golden Gate Bridge, and the other windows, the Bay Bridge. It was just unbelievable. And my wife looks around to me, gives me a little wink and goes, yeah, good call, Killer, good call. Yeah, <laughs> It was pretty funny. Yeah, can't beat that view, I guess. Yeah. So you were just saying that uh, when Marat's agent called you, and uh, I just picked up on that because you said and you had a conversation with Agassi. That reminds me yeah. of the whole Larry Stefanki and... Uh, Fernando Gonzalez and Andy Murray situation in 2006. And Stefanki, I think, was an ESPN. He said, yeah, the difference was Murray's agent called me and Gonzalez yep. called me himself. And a lot of times, does that make a difference? Of course, I guess he's a huge Massive, name. massive difference. Uh, it really does. And it still does. And it doesn't sway it too much one way or the other. But if the player calls you directly, it's, it means they really care and they really want to try to make this happen. And, and you can have a one-on-one -on -one conversation instead of going through a manager. And the other thing also is if a manager calls you, you're not quite sure if the player really wants it or the manager's really pushing it. And if the player goes to the trouble of picking up the phone, then you know the player really wants it to happen. So for me, it made a massive difference. And he called me back two or three times in that phone call and basically would not take no for an answer. And how can you say no to him? And who knows if had he hung up or had his manager called me and hung up the phone, maybe I would have gone uh, with the Saffin job. You never know. But it did make a big difference that Andre took the time to pick up the phone himself. Absolutely. How do you say, I mean, of course, maybe you can because you said no to Roger Federer when you guys had this little bit of a meeting in Dubai. So have you ever looked back at that episode? I know you said in media that you had a young family and you just didn't want to yeah. have that kind of commitment. Have you ever it, wasn't, had... it wasn't. It wasn't a – yeah, I have for sure. Um, there's, many, there's many layers to that whole thing as well. You know, I love Roger. Like everybody knows, I'm a big Roger Federer fan and I have been for many years because of Peter Carter and the connection I've had with Peter. And Peter was best man at my wedding basically. And so I grew up with Peter through the junior tournaments here in Adelaide. And as it happened, he went across to Switzerland, became a coach at Basel Old Boys at that tennis club where – Federer was playing, became Federer's personal coach. And I came across when he, Federer was about 12 or 13 years of age and, and checked him out the same time I started to work with Leighton Hewitt. So I knew Roger through all of those years. Um, we, we shared in the horror uh, together of Peter passing away in that tragic car accident. I flew across from America to Switzerland and I was at the, the funeral um, with Roger and Roger was in tears. And it was a huge changing moment for Roger in his life. He's spoken about that. So... So it's not just that, you know, when I see Roger, I, I feel a lot of Peter in him as well. And I struggle with that a little bit in a good way and also in a bad way. It's kind of hard for me to explain that a little bit. But the big thing about when I went across to Dubai, it was for about 11 or 12 days. And we sat down, we spoke about it. And I had the Adidas job where I was consulting with Adidas. And, and most of those weeks were Vegas weeks where the players would come through Las Vegas. They would train with both Gil Reyes and myself. And so I was able to stay home with the family a great deal whilst doing that job. And also I was working with ESPN. And as you know, there are not many great jobs in tennis, but being employed by ESPN is one of those jobs. So I didn't, no one would give up that job lightly. And when I went across to Dubai, I was really clear and everyone was really clear that we'd give it a really good go, 11, 12 days, throw your heart and soul into it. And at the end of those 11 or 12 days, if Roger wasn't absolutely sure that I was the guy to take him forward, then probably I wasn't the guy. And so we got to the end of those 11 or 12 days and, and there was still a bit of toing and froing and the trial wanted to continue through India Wells and Miami. And you know what it's like once you step out with Roger. If you step out coaching Roger Federer, that's it. Uh, you're his coach. You, basically, I would have had to give up the Adidas job 
and give up the ESPN job. And unless it was definitive, um, I wasn't prepared to do that. And, and also because of the jobs that I had, I was able to spend a great deal of time with my family back in Las Vegas. And I was probably only traveling about 15 weeks back then. So I had the perfect setup. So that, that's kind of the long version of it. It's not just a straight no. No, I mean, and thanks I'm for not, sharing the whole Peter yeah. Carter connection because that's kind of yeah. the stuff that sometimes we don't get to read about. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, you had your reason. I'm sure he understood it. And of course... Uh, he was great. He was unbelievable. I called him directly. Uh, we spoke for about 20 minutes about it. He, he couldn't have been nicer about it. Classy as always. And as it happened, Tony Gottsick, when we were across in Dubai, said to me, we're having breakfast one morning. We were speaking about all of this sort of stuff. And Tony said to me, he's going to win the French Open this year. <laughs> and I looked at him and smiled. And this is before Roger had won the French Open. So you know how much it meant to him. And I looked at him and smiled. And I said, that would un be unbelievable. And I just remember watching him going off and that year winning the French Open and seeing the smile on Tony's face and, and knowing what joy and a little bit of relief also it brought for Andre when Brad Gilbert was his coach to finally win the French Open. Uh, I know what it must have meant to that team. So I was incredibly happy for him. Absolutely. So even though I said that, you know, Agassi's stories are well documented, but taking a job like that with, you know, such a elite athlete who was at the peak of his powers, Agassi with you kind of reinvented some of the years, but he had a pretty successful run with Brad Gilbert. So when you take yep. that kind of an assignment, uh, how much of a player buy-in, of course he was making those phone calls, but how much of a player buy-in you need? Because, you know, some of these uh, so successful champions are also pretty stubborn and stubbornness is a token of greatness. So when do you walk in? What kind of leverage? I mean, do you discuss these kind of things? I mean, we're going to do it my way or things are open for discussion or this is how I see in your game. What are those conversations, if those conversations do take place in an interview form? Well, I think if any coach walks in there and tries to push his weight around and says, OK, it's time you do it my way, uh, you, you're not going to last very long. The job's not going to be there for you because he actually made about two days after we decided we were going to work together. It's kind of interesting also that I didn't know this, but he called me up and he said, Darren, I've just got one question before you before you jump on the plane and come across. To, to start the sort of the six-week trial with him. He said, what do you think about physical training before tennis? And I was kind of the old school thinking that, you know, you do most of the tennis training in the morning, you play a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the afternoon, and then you do whatever physical training you need afterwards. That's kind of the way it had been done for all these years. And that was my way of thinking. But I knew with Gil Reyes, they had a pretty special setup. And honestly, I didn't know the right answer. So I said, you know what, Andre, I haven't spent any time with you. I reckon I've got to come over there, speak to Gilly, see how you react from it, see what you're trying to accomplish. And maybe I can learn something because I have a sort of a thought about it, but really I'm not educated in that area. And I would love to come over and spend some time and talk to you about what the benefits are of doing heavy weightlifting before you go out and play tennis. So with that, he said, that's the answer I was looking for. Because had you told me definitively one way or the other, I would have walked you into my gym and shown you my seven Grand Slam singles trophies and said, you know what, we've done pre things pretty well so far. So it was like a little test. And, and he didn't say it in a bad way. He said it in the way that I need someone who's open to learning and, and growing and evolving, just like I want to. And if you're coming over here with these stuck attitudes, it's probably not going to work. So before I jumped on the on the plane, it was like a little test that he was giving me. And after that, uh, the collaboration was great. Everything that we discussed going back and forth, uh, it was always with a purpose. It was always a three-way conversation between Gil Reyes, Andre and myself as to what are we trying to achieve? 
how are we going about it and what's going to be the end result with going down that path. So everything was really well planned. Okay, so does that all make sense? Hopefully. No, absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking like this is the kind of stuff like when this podcast is released, people are going to talk about because a lot of stuff that, you know, a public figure like you, you're giving, imparting so much knowledge on ESPN anyway. So this is something new that I think I've followed you a lot. And this is just, I think, this, this is great stuff. But this does tie in with one of the questions from our staff, Mert Ertunga, who's like a big contributor in tennis with an accent. He wanted to ask a question, what he, pretty much you and Agassi conversation, uh, I think it, it falls back to that. So do you think the way the game has evolved, there's a little more uh, focus on conditioning? And of course, the game is physical, you need that. But do you think yeah. the, the excessive training and conditioning and the gym work, which has replaced, say, five hours of ball hitting that Lendl used to do and maybe Nishikori yeah. is doing two hours. You think that's also part and parcel a cause for a lot of injuries these days? Well, I would counter that, I reckon. Uh, the game has become a lot more physical. No question about that. The players today are much better athletes. They can last longer. They can run faster. They can jump higher. Uh, they are stronger. The big difference is back in our days, you're right, we used to be on the court four or five hours a day. That's where most of our physical training and conditioning was, was gained from playing. But also learning all parts of the court. The string has changed the game enormously. The guys can stand further back behind the baseline. They can generate more speed by stringing their rackets a little bit looser because of the, the new strings. They can impart more spin on the ball, which means they're finding sharper angles in the court, which means if you're defending, you have to run a bigger distance to get those balls back. But what hasn't probably improved are the transition skills and the net skills and their finishing skills you know we did that all day long we were always looking for a way to get to the net uh, to finish points even Lendl for as great as he was from the back of the court he, he ended up at the net a lot because he was smart enough to know that you had to take advantage of some great shots from behind the court I don't think the volleying skills the overhead skills the transitioning skills um, have improved at all. In fact, I would say they've regressed a little bit, but the guys are actually hitting the ball so much better that they can just hit winners from any part of the court. And I would also say the injuries, you've got to counter that with how many players are you seeing playing great tennis, maybe career-best tennis, into their 30s now and having the, bit, the window of their career extended. And it's because they're taking much better care of their bodies and they're not beating them up on the tennis court like we used to. Um, they're traveling now with physios, they're doing some Pilates, some yoga, they massage every day, they're, they're taking care of their greatest asset and that's their bodies. And that means they're having much more longevity in the career than what we used to have. Andre was 32 when I started with him and back then, you know, 32 years old and still playing tennis was a rarity. You know, Connors may be the exception, but not many players were playing at that age at that level back then. Now it seems like it's the norm. So I would say that most careers, because of the way the players are playing today and the way they're treating their bodies, have actually been extended. So you think, it, could that be attributed to there's more information and data available? Because back in oh, the day, sure. only Lendl could afford that, or maybe uh, in, you know, not too long ago, Agassi and Sampras could afford that, but now it looks like there's so much out there. So overall, it's helped players you know, play their peak into the mid-30s, or at least stay yeah, very relevant. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And it's the way technology goes and all sports. Everybody's getting a little bit smarter about how to train the athletes, and it's not about how hard you work anymore. It's about how smart you work, and everybody's going about it differently and doing it in a much smarter way. So you're 100% correct.
Sure. So let's uh, move this forward to Simona Halla before we get to her. You were working, like you said, in the Adidas program. Uh, I, I believe it was based in Nevada, but it got shut down, what, three or four years ago? So I, yeah. I have a question. Uh, I know you work with maybe Sanya Mirza, some Adidas players like Verdasco, who also spent time with Gil Reyes, maybe Ernest Gulbis, you spoke about him. So yeah. at that level, these small workshops or these programs, how can they benefit like a pro like a Gulbis or a Verdasco? I mean, what, what was your commitment in that program and how do you think that relationship works in these small capsules when you spend time with these players? Yeah, I thought it was an unusual program and something that worked really well. We, we weren't there to be one person's individual coach. We were really there to be another voice for that particular team with the coach and the player and to be a, a set of outside eyes that would come in and, and just see how they were doing things, if we could offer anything different, some different suggestions. And at times, if the player and the coach split up, then I would step in and, and help them on an interim basis. And then my job became okay, who's going to be the right coach for you moving forward? So a little bit of that happened with Andy Murray. Uh, he finished with Alex Karecha. Uh, he had Danny Valvedu looking after him as well. So together with Danny from India Wells through to the end of the year, we worked together for that six or nine months. And then at the end of that nine months, um, we went off and we saw Stevan Lendl as the possible coach. I, I do remember the first phone call I had with Ivan. actually. It was quite funny. I was speaking to Andy and said, look, who are you thinking about? moving forward and we were throwing around a, a number of names and he said Ivan Lendl mentioned a couple of years ago that he kind of likes my game and, and wouldn't be inter uh, would be interested in maybe coaching me so I said let me give him a call I know Ivan pretty well so I called him up and <laughs> exactly like, like I told you before I said Ivan you know just been working with Andy for the last nine months we're thinking about the perfect coach for him there's an article a couple of years ago that said that you love the way he plays uh, would you be interested in looking after him coaching him and he goes Darren I have one question for you. Are you calling me because you want me to coach him or does Andy want me to coach him? And I said, good bloody question. <laughs> so <laughs> I, called, I called Andy back and I said, look, this is the question. Ask me. Um, you definitely want this, right? He goes, yeah, I definitely want it. I said, you know what? You call him. <laughs> and so Andy called him and then uh, we met for lunch about two weeks later and, and that was that. They, they teamed up and had a great partnership for a couple of years. So that was kind of my role with Adidas. We have a lot of players coming through Vegas. Um, it was a great experience. There were a couple that bought in a little more than others. Vedasco basically based himself in Las Vegas for a couple of years and was training with Gilly and I was helping him on the court with his tennis. Uh, and then there were other players that would come through for a week. That's when he made a, that run to the semis, right, in Australia? That's yeah, a, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it was. Uh, that, that were fun times. Actually, he was uh, really committed to the training. Really committed to the on-court training. We were tinkering with his game a little bit, um, and then you know, with the Adidas program just spanning and finishing up, and it was pretty expensive for Adidas to do as well. So it had a great run for five or six years. I wasn't the only coach. Actually, the guy who started it was Sven Sven Gronefeld. Mm -hmm. uh, he did an, an amazing job, and actually. When he was with Adidas, I believe he took Andre Ivanovic. He helped her when she won the French Open and get to number one in the world. And he also played a part with Caroline Wozniacki doing exactly the same. So Sven was actually the one that worked a lot more with Sonia. Okay. Uh, this is a question actually I asked you on Twitter and you even replied. I think the year is 2013. My memory, you know, is very fresh. Uh, this is about Ernest Gulbis and when he retooled his forehand. And you said the forehand needed retooling because the, the previous version or the version that he had in 2010, 2011 was more likely to break down. But a lot of people, yeah. in the, at least in the fan community, which I represent, didn't like that seagull forehand. So 
do you yeah. think that shot, the breaking down had, and reconstruction had kind of hampered his career besides injuries? Yeah, so I didn't do the seagull forehand. Uh, that was, um, yeah, that was with uh, his coach from Austria, who works with the, uh, yeah, Bosnik with the uh, team. Something had to change. Uh, I was on the court with with Ernest, and an incredible guy, and so I've got a really soft, big soft spot for him. We spent um, three or only three or four weeks together. Actually, it wasn't very long, but I would stay in touch with Ernie as the as the months would roll along, and. And he would hit three forehands into the bottom of the net. And I'd look at him and go, Ernie, everything okay? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's okay. It'll come good. <laughs> then another four or five forehands, and one would go long by 20 feet, and one would go in. The next one would hit the bottom of the net. He didn't feel it. And it was a little bit because of his action. Um, he took the racket back, and he nearly took his right ear off with his hand as he took the racket back. He took it so close to his head. And he was so blocked in hitting that forehand. But I guess it, at times he just played his way through it. What Bresnik did with it, whilst it looked unusual and uncomfortable and a little bit awkward, Ernest got to the top 10 with it. It was a remarkable effort. Didn't he make the semifinals in Paris as well? Yeah, A number of years yeah. ago? Yeah. yeah, so whatever he did with it, it worked. And he found a way, even though it didn't look like a normal forehand, he found a way to make it work and for Ernest to feel it and to rely on it and actually get some confidence from it. Without that, his game could break down at any time. I don't know about his game moving forward, and maybe there were some other issues with him moving forward, but I think Bresnik did a pretty good job in rejigging that forehand and at least giving him the tools to get out there and problem-solve himself. And you said something also, again, I'm such a geek, you know, uh, you probably have forgotten this, but I think this was, again, ESPN coverage regarding Gulbis. You said you've known him and a lot of time people say he comes from a lot of wealth and money, but truth cannot be farther, you know, that he's actually a tennis player at heart. And you see him yeah, struggling and yeah. playing challengers. The guy must absolutely want this. He's still doing it. He loses more matches than he wins. Yeah, look, he's the nicest guy. Anybody that meets him will just have a smile on their face. And if you get to spend time with him, you know, all he does is laugh at himself, crack jokes. He doesn't take himself too seriously, but really, really professional and wants it so badly. Everyone has this perception about Ernie that, well, he doesn't go out there and try all that hard because of what he has and, and the family wealth. Well, that's actually the opposite. You know, he wants to go out there and make a name for himself and do it so badly. In fact, too much at times. And, and it held him back at times because he wanted it so badly. He was training so hard that he would get blocked on the court and especially when it wasn't coming. So I felt with him for him at times because he got a little bit of a bad rap there for a number of years. But the person at heart, he's a great guy. I'll always have a soft spot for him. If he ever knocks on the door and needs someone to come out and spend a little time with him on the court, I would jump out there and try to help him. And uh, yeah, he's a terrific, terrific young man. And every time I do see him uh, playing challenges and then working his way back up and getting his ranking back up, I you know, certainly walk up to him and give him a pat on the back because that's what it's all about. No, that's really good to hear. I'm sure like there are a few Gulbis fans that I interact with. So this is a good story for them. So we're trying to cover a lot of ground here. Let's move. To he has a lot of fans, right? Ernie has a lot of fans. Yeah, he's, and he's one of those guys who's not on social media. I mean, he's just... Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so let's bring Simona Halep in there now. So when you took up the job, I believe that's the transition period when you were still with Adidas and the program was fading out. So what made you decide to go back full-time on tour? I'm sure she's an incredible talent, a great person. But what, what triggered that decision to blossom that partnership into something full-time? And you, of course, were there uh, to see her win in Roland Garros. So just uh, talk about that, that relationship. 
Yeah, it's a little bit from what you said before. It makes a big difference when the player will pick up the telephone and actually make the phone call themselves. And I remember when we got the news that Adidas wasn't continuing with the program, I think it was back in 2015. might have been, yeah, so the start of 2016. Uh, Simona found out, and I was helping her with a couple of coaches throughout the course of that year with Adidas, and then she got to a point where she didn't have a coach. So I kind of finished off the year with her helping her, and then I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do for the following year in 2016. And, and she... Uh, we could go out and get a bite to eat at the US Open. I think she'd finished at the US Open that year. She may have made the semis, I reckon. She maybe lost to Panetta in the semis. And we went and had dinner after that match. And she said, um, look, I know it's three or four months away, but I want you to consider working with me next year. So she asked me personally. So with that, and also no one else asked me as well. So she was the first to, to grab me and to ask me. And so with that, uh, you know, obviously I spoke to my wife about it. The thought of going back on the road and traveling another 30 35 weeks a year was a little bit daunting and that we had to give it due consideration but the big thing that I was really attracted to with her was not only what she possessed as far as she was already a great player already five top five in the world I think at that time she might have been two or three in the world but the work ethic was incredible every time she stepped on the court she was always 100% from the very first ball she hit to the last ball she played she wouldn't overdo it with the time that she spent on the court, maybe a couple of hours a day. And she would spend a lot of time also looking after her body because of the way she plays. She has to look after her body. But everything she did, even before I came along, she did it with a real purpose and a desire. And you can see that fierceness and that hunger in the way she went about her practice sessions. And I love that. Spending time on the practice court with her was incredible. I'd already had a taste of how those emotions can get her wound up a little bit in the match situation so I knew it was going to be a good challenge to try to get through that but you could see that the the real guts and determination was already there you didn't have to teach it it was very similar to what was there for Leighton and also very similar to what was there for Andre so that was the similarity in those three players that I had the chance to coach uh, did it help coaching uh, Simona Halep after the success you had with Agassi does it all tie in or was there too much of a gap for that to resonate well, I think every experience helps in one way or another. I think the journey that I had with Andre was so different to the one that I had with Leighton is that you just put in different situations. And you, even as a coach, I know we talk about problem solving a lot for players, but even as a coach, you have to find ways to problem solve and get your communication right to communicate the message you're trying to get through to the player. And sometimes it's not that easy to just walk through the front door and tell your player what you think you know you have to go around a side door or a back door or a trap door sometimes and sometimes it's the the way you're giving the message or when you're giving the message and a lot of it's trial by error and I think the good thing for Simona and I is we had that nine months or so to work together before we started on a full-time basis so we knew each other but she did say once I committed to doing the full-time job with her that she actually felt the pressure a little more than I did uh, just the fact that I'd taken her on and I'd had a little bit of success, which shouldn't have mattered at all, but she felt it because I'd had success with Agassi and also with Hewitt, that she felt the pressure was on her now to step up and have that same type of success. So uh, when she was walking onto the court, especially early in our partnership, she felt a little more nervous than normal and more nervous than she should have been, not so much to please me, but to live up to expectations. Hopefully so that makes sense as well. No, absolutely. So uh, let me ask you this. I don't know if this makes sense, what I'm going to say, but at an elite level with these kind of athletes, do you think a coach can uh, uh, 
it can be coach basically problem solving because that's what sometimes a lot of time is written about these you know great players who sometimes during a match have a plan B and that's I believe what Agassi said once about you mm -hmm. what I read that he saw Leighton Hewitt have come with so many plans in a game and that's he thought that was uh, you know a big reflection of your style of coaching so I don't know if this question makes sense but can you teach these guys problem solving? Oh, for sure. I think that's every every tennis player basically has to go to school, and that's what from situations when you play matches, um, from matches you lose when you're in winning positions, how you're dealing with nerves, and how you're putting your game plans into how do they come to fruition. Um, uh, there's problem solving in every single shot you play. Uh, that's what tennis is basically a game of chess. You know we. In tennis, we're looking to stay neutral in the point. That's what tennis is. You're looking to put the ball in a, in a position in the court where you feel like, okay, the player can't actually hurt me on that particular shot. And if they go for something crazy, that's okay. I'm going to let them have that because they won't be able to sustain that through the course of the match. But when can I attack? So as your opponent hits the ball, you're trying to work out how much spin it has, where it's going to land in the court. Is this a ball that I can step up on and take a bit more of a risk? Can I transition to the net? That's tennis. You're, you're problem solving on every single shot. So to put that into context over the course of a match, there's a lot to learn from every single match. And I, I know that analysis, you can get paralysis by analysis sometimes, but if you're not learning and going to school on your tennis matches, then you're not improving. It doesn't just happen going out there and hitting tennis balls. So you have to, as an athlete, find ways to get better. And I think most of the players do that today. All right, well said. So I think I'm kind of taking full advantage of you here, but you know, we have to keep in mind the topic. So let's make a quick transition to your broadcasting days, and then we'll get right into French Open. So going back to the Amritraj days, there's another question that comes mm -hmm. from our staff. How has broadcasting changed for you who started you know, uh, in mid-90s, and then you are one of the big voices of ESPN? What has changed? Uh, or is there a standout change? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, I'm not sure there's been a lot of changes. I think that there's a big difference to the way Americans broadcast sport to the way other countries broadcast sport. Um, you know, I'm a fan of sport, so I love sitting down and just watching sport. And I have my, my broadcasters that I love to listen to as well, and I try to learn from them, a, a little bit like coaches do with coaches and, and players do with players. Uh, players. Um, I think there are certain broadcasters out there that do a really good job. So as much as I can, that I try to listen to those. But I think in general, it has to be a conversation, right? I think that you're you're talking to the viewer back home and you're trying to make it as relaxed as possible and you're trying to give a little bit of information if you can. But if you end up just talking, they just become words. And, and too much talk for me is never a great thing. And mostly if you're doing TV, that, that's great for radio because you don't have the vision and you can't see it. But mostly on television, you can see what's happening anyway. I remember it was a great story from a famous broadcaster, um, Dick Enberg, that one of the first days that I ever had a chance to work with him, and he was unbelievable at what he did and had this incredible voice as well. And I was at Wimbledon on Centre Court and I walked in and I was nervous as hell when I saw the schedule come out. We were doing a Federer match, so I was nervous for that. But I was also doing it as the color person for Dick Anberg, who was the play-by-play -play person. And Dick did his homework incredibly well, had all these papers lined up on the desk. And the desks in the broadcast booth are not very big. So I, I went and sat in there and he moved all these papers across to his side. And I had, only had this one sheet of paper with a few little notes that I jotted down. And I knew the players, obviously. And I went, oh, 
Dick, I feel really unprepared. Look at you. Oh, my God, you've got all, all this homework, all these notes. Um, oh, I, I don't think I'm ready for this. And he looked at me and he goes, young fella, if you came in here with all of these notes and you're going to read from these notes, then you would be a crap broadcaster. These are for crap. These are for broadcasters like me who don't know tennis. I need to. I need you to tell me what I'm not seeing. So tell me what we as a viewer are not seeing. And he's exactly right. That, that's the that's the reason the color broadcasters are there. You're there to try to describe the parts of the game that the viewer is not seeing on television. So hopefully we do that pretty well on ESPN. Uh, we, that's what we try to do anyway. Um, it, it's maybe changed a little bit where it's become more analytic, analytical, I think. And I think I noticed that in NFL as well. There's a lot more talking about strategy and, and preempting what might happen, less of wrapping up what just happened. And I think that's been different to what the way broadcasters used to broadcast maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, you would know better than I would. You're a viewer, so you're better to judge that than I am, to be honest. No, I think it's just like anything these days. You know, ESPN raised the bar, Tennis Channel came in, and then there's ATP Tennis. So now just like, you know, you first used to go to Blockbuster, rent a movie, now you're on Netflix. Everybody has a queue, but you can't get through yep. the queue. So the options are more, like you said, less is more. Your name yep. gets tossed around a lot, Nick Lester. There are a lot of great callers through different platforms. So let me ask you this. ESPN has seen like such a big provider of tennis, and uh, we, we cover a lot of main tournaments through ESPN, and I'm sure the coverage is Federer, Serena, Djokovic-centric. But how does mm -hmm. Darren Cahill prepare for a match? Of course, you're calling, say, a Nadal match, but Nadal is playing Dennis Easterman. What homework do you do for an Easterman, even though you really know his game? How do you prepare for you know, Nadal's opponent if you have to call a match? Well, you always go back to the previous match. If they're playing in the third round, you go back and watch a little highlights of the first two matches they've played. More than likely, maybe seen one of those matches, especially the Nadal matches. Uh, you go back to the previous matches they played against each other. You go back to the head and head. Uh, you go to the Hawkeye statistics and work out if there's any patterns that you can. But you know what you are? You're basically a coach, but you're a coach of both players. So you're going back and doing the homework to see where the strengths and where the weaknesses lie, where the patterns are, what we might be able to expect on the big points. You're basically doing the same work as what a coach is doing. The problem we have at ESPN and as you know is let's say Wimbledon coming up where I think we're televising 17 or 18 courts we could go from any court at any moment so whilst there is a match that we start on as you know as a viewer <laughs> we're not necessarily going to be there for very long because if there's a better match going on they'll just pick up the broadcast and shoot across to court 13 because it's five or on the fifth set so you have to have a real general feel of most of the players and, and and all of that homework comes throughout the course of a year you can't cram for that and the two guys that basically live 10 or everybody at ESPN lives it but Brad Gilbert must call me six times a day talking about the challenges and the futures and the tournaments and the matches that are going on he and I follow it 365 days a year and with television these days and with the access to it, with tennis TV, uh, with what's on on ESPN3, you can pretty much find any match from any tournament anywhere in the world. So as viewers, I think we're pretty lucky with what's available to us these days. So I'm, I'm doing my homework just like you guys are, just watching tennis and being a casual fan. And you take a lot of that through to your commentary at ESPN. Yeah, well, the differences we learn from you, you know, when you speak, you know, that sometimes becomes information that get carries uh, forward. But you're right. I think I, I'm also finding a lot of fans are knowledgeable and, uh, you know, we keep each other very sure. honest in a very constructive way. So uh, based on, you know, a former coach who's still a coach, but in the commentary booth, Matt Zemek, you know, my partner in the website yeah. and podcast has a question for you. 
He says, how do you dissect during a rally when a player is going, you know, say cross-court backhand rallies they're exchanging? How do you tell or how do you translate this to a viewer that one player is being cautious and the other player is being very confident or vice versa? Yeah, it's a little bit body language as well. Uh, you can tell a little bit by the swing as to whether they're finishing the swing or whether they're checking the swing a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit by the zigzag and the foot movement as to whether or not they're getting inside the baseline or looking to get inside the baseline. It's how they're reacting after they make their shot. Just little things. You know, it's the one percent as we talk about in all sports that you kind of pick up on when you sit there as a, as a coach or a player or even as a fan that you just get used to seeing the little one percenters that you you recognize as a player. And I think it helps a little bit being a former player as well as you kind of understand what they're trying to achieve. And if they're not getting it done, maybe some of the changes they might try to make to actually get it done. And that's where I guess we have a little bit of a leg up, but being able to communicate that sometimes is a little more difficult. And also it can change so quickly in tennis. What works two games ago might not be working anymore. And you might have to make a real radical variation to your game plan. So uh, it's interesting. I think with the way the game is played today, with so much of it being from the back of the court, even watching the Djokovic-Nadal final in Rome, I thought was really fascinating because, you know, Rafa made a real conscious effort anytime Novak dropped the ball short at all. He basically charged inside the baseline. He was hitting forehands on the run to make sure Novak didn't have enough time to recover to get to the next shot. He was just ripping time away from him. I thought that was really interesting. It's the first time that I've seen him really do that against Novak, just have this real urgency about moving forward anytime Novak dropped the ball short. So in the second set, Novak had to make an adjustment. He felt it. He could see it. Obviously, the scoreboard was completely against him. And then Novak makes a massive adjustment as well. So it's like a chess game at times. And I think trying to communicate that chess game is our biggest challenge. Mm. And as someone, you know, who's so close to the game, uh, Brianna, who also is part of our staff, wants to know, what's your take as a commentator uh, if Hawkeye should be brought to clay? Because that's like a very current <laughs> topic of discussion. What's your take? Uh, I think uh, it should not be brought. I think it is what it is. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm yeah. very old school. I mean, the umpires yeah. are there, you know, sometimes we still make mistakes. That's why challenging, you know, on other surfaces yeah. work, but in clay, I don't think it's needed, but... <laughs> What's your take? <laughs> yeah, look, I, Hawkeye has been a wonderful innovation and I love it. But let's be real here. It's not perfect. And everybody knows it's not perfect. The players know it's not perfect. Calling a mark on clay certainly isn't perfect either, but it's close to it. And, and the problem also you have is clay is a moving surface. So to recalibrate, recalibrate Hawkeye, well, you have to do it every couple of games or every set, or it's just an impossible thing to get right. The system we have at the moment is certainly not perfect. The, the, the times I hate it is when a chair umpire or a player circles the wrong mark and the chair umpire might come down and see the wrong mark, or they massively get it wrong, which is rare. I think there was just an instance a couple of weeks ago where it looked like a chair umpire came down on a pretty big point and, and got it wrong, caught a ball good when it was definitely long off a serve. But those instances, for all the matches and all the games and all the sets that are played on clay, those instances are pretty rare. So I think the system we have on clay is as good as any we're ever going to get. I have no problem with not using Hawkeye on clay. I have a little frustration with the TV then replaying Hawkeye on clay when it's not available to use for the chair umpire because then you're just going to get problems. During the clay court events, I'd actually not make Hawkeye available to, to television. Yeah, I think that that's does, how, that's that how does how make sense. Yeah, it kind of creates for extra noise because that ship has yeah. already sailed. And Correct. a lot of times, you know, then those uh, those videos are floating around on Twitter. So anyway, uh, let's come to 
you know, the crux of the conversation, which is Roland Garros. And uh, ladies first. So uh, you think this is uh, the way the clay s uh, season is. Women have a lot of indoor clay tournaments. And sometimes, uh, I don't know if that's ideal rhythm-wise, because the men play all outdoor, even though Munich is very rainy and cold. But women have few tournaments that are like indoors. And uh, what's your take on, you know, that part of the season and how that tunes into, say, some of, some of the top players' preparation going to Roland Garros? So meeting for the clay court events, you're meaning having indoor tournaments? Yeah. Uh, well, French Open is the outdoor event anyway, and I think there's uh, enough outdoor events for the players to get ready for um, for the French Open. And, you know, the thing about Paris is that conditions can change so rapidly, even in the course of one day, but certainly from one day to the next. And the chances of a player winning, if it's dry and sunny and conditions are incredibly fast, and then if you have a slightly overcast day or even a little bit of rain around the place, <clears throat> it can slow up so much and it becomes a whole different tournament. I, that's the big thing the players have to really contend with at the French Open. Obviously, for the men, playing five sets is much more difficult, much more physical. It can be a mental battle as well, but certainly a big physical battle. But dealing with the conditions in Paris and the changing in playing conditions, that to me is the biggest challenge. Hmm. Uh, so Kiki Bertens, uh, that's the name that keeps coming up and a lot of uh, our Twitter DMs uh, involved as her being uh, one of the top two favorites followed closely by Simona Halep yep. or vice versa. Those are two top players. Do you see it differently? If not, uh, how do you stack them up before the draw is announced as co-favorites or... I think there are um, a lot of players that can potentially win in Paris. I think Simona, she didn't win any of the tournaments moving into Roland Garros last year. So maybe she played a little bit better. She made the quarters of Madrid and then made the final in Rome. But you can't discount Simona on clay. It's, she played two great Fed Cup matches for Romania and then made the final in Madrid. And Kiki played incredibly well to, to beat her in that final, but Simona had her chances. Um, and then a little bit of a disappointing one in the first round. But we can go through the women's draw. I think Kvitova is going to be a dangerous opponent at this year's French. Uh, Naomi Osaka, if she gets her confidence, we know that she can take the racket out of anybody's hands. Burton's has got some terrific form. Uh, I think there's 10 or 12 players that certainly have a great chance moving in there, and, and everybody would walk in there pretty confident they can go a long way. And Karolina Pliskova, who just won in Rome. So are yep. you surprised that she has such a big serve, but she really hasn't really made her move on the grass, but uh, she's done pretty well on the clay? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And she's had good clay court form over the last few years. Uh, she made the semifinals in Paris a couple of years ago, and I think she's won most of the uh, big clay court tournaments. And, yeah, she's done incredibly well, and, and she's playing a real aggressive type of tennis at the moment. And it's a little bit like Osaka. If she's playing pretty well on clay, it's when she's playing aggressively, she's moving well, but she's making her opponent do most of the running and she's controlling the centre of the court. The serve makes a big difference also. If the day is sunny and the ball's flying through the court, they've got the, the ladies that can serve pretty well, they get to win a lot of free points off their serve. And when they do take chances in the return games, they get rewarded more for them. So, yeah, I keep going back to the conditions, as you can tell in Paris. It plays such a, a huge part. Even a couple of years ago, Simona lost to Sam Stozer in the fourth round, and we were pretty confident going into French Open that year. It was sunny throughout the course of all the clay court events. Simona won Madrid, was playing great tennis. And then when she played Sam, it rained for like two days, and, and Sam played an amazing match, but Simona just couldn't get the ball through the court. <laughs> couldn't, could not get the ball past Sam. It was that heavy and that wet. 
Um, and so, yeah, conditions will play a big part as to how the players uh, move through that tournament. Yeah, that's very similar to how Soderling beat Federer that year. It was rainy and he just uh, could hit through the court. And I guess yep. the big hitters have a leverage there. Uh, it becomes a different tournament. Uh, yep. So who are some of the outside uh, outsiders? Are you following the close uh, tour, uh, tour closely? Uh, who can make some noise if not win the title? Is Belinda Bencic one of those names? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's a lot of players that can do incredibly well. Belinda's had a pretty good year so far this season, and she's gaining in confidence. Um, in the end, though, I, I, th- I still think the winner will come from uh, the players that have shown good form through the clay court tournaments. And the, they're the ones that build up the confidence. They're the ones that are playing incredibly well. Uh, a couple of years ago, obviously, Ostapenko made a run through the, the draw and, and beat a lot of great players and ended up beating Simona in the uh, in the final. But she's a rarity, I think, for someone that hasn't played great clay court tennis before that and then came through and won that event. But I think most of the, the, the top seeds, you know, Ashley Barty, someone you have to watch out for as well. Sloane Stevens, if she can get through the first couple of matches, she always plays great in Grand Slams. We've spoken about Kvitova. A little bit of a question mark on Alina Svitolina at the moment. But if, if she finds a form and she's healthy, Serena, uh, no one can discount Serena. I know she's only played one clay court match, but if Serena gets it going, she has a chance as well. Uh, Sabalenka hasn't played great tennis so far this season, but same thing happens with her. So well, I can go through the draw and I can go on and on. But yeah, maybe for the players ranked outside the top 10, uh, maybe Belinda Bencic is one of those players or even someone like Madison Keys. Uh, yeah. She hasn't played uh, a lot of clay court tennis. I think she might have played the tournament in the States and, and did really well. But beyond that, the um, same thing happens with Madison. If she can get through that first week, she's going to be tough. Absolutely. So you mentioned Sloane and, and also Muguruza. Muguruza is ranked 19 in the world at the moment. So uh, same thing happens with her. I, I can go on and on with the women's draw. <laughs> That's no, no, why I... it's so fascinating at the moment. There are so many players that have a chance. Yeah, it's definitely uh, deep in its own way compared to the ATP side. So there's a small question on Sloane Stevens. She's definitely yep. one of the elite clay court players. Uh, in yep. your opinion, you, you're based in the U.S. You work for ESPN, covered American <clears throat> tennis for more than a decade. Why do you think the American women tend to do better on clay than, you know, uh, the American generation starting with Roddick and now same thing with the Isner, Sock and uh, w- what's the Achilles heel here? And now UST has invested in clay court, I believe, in Orlando. So what's yeah. the undoing so far? Why they do well or why they don't do well? Why, why the men don't do well but the women still manage to do well? What's the difference? Uh, is it the two tours or the ball that's being hit or it's a movement? No, I think with the women's tour, it's a little bit different. Firstly, Sloan's an incredible athlete. So you put a great athlete on clay uh, defensively, it's pretty tough to get the ball by her. And, and, and clay's a confidence surface as well. If you gain, even for someone like myself who didn't like playing on clay, once you win a couple of matches on clay, it can actually become a real joy to play on. So you gain that confidence really fast. I think it's one of those surfaces where doesn't matter how much you dislike the surface. As soon as you win a couple of matches, it actually becomes a fun surface to play on. So it's a little bit like the American women, the Sloan and Madison and the like. They they move pretty well. Sloan obviously moves a bit better than Madison. But once they, they start to win a couple of matches on clay, they start to enjoy their tennis on the clay and they play with a little more freedom. And with those two players that hit the ball so hard and so big – it feels like on clay there's a little more room to work with and you can stand back a little further. You can let your arms and shoulders open a little more and go for a little more. So once the confidence build, 
builds, they're going to be always very dangerous. I think for the men, it's a little bit different as well because the American men grew up, a lot of them playing college tennis or a lot of their junior tennis on hard courts. And it's a style of tennis that is really trying to finish the point pretty quickly. John's a little bit different. You know, he's six foot 10, so you can't teach six foot 10. And whenever you have a serve like he has, he's incredibly tough to beat on any surface. And I wouldn't say John's a bad clay quarter at all. I think he's incredibly good clay quarter because even on a slow clay court, he can hit through a slow slow clay court with his massive serve. Uh, Jack Sock plays okay on the clay. He's always had a little bit of an issue with his backhand that he can't get the ball cross on his backhand. He's more to the middle of the court or down the line, so he becomes a little predictable on a clay court. But I think the USTA is doing the right thing now. All the national associations are investing more in clay courts because it just builds the tennis IQ. And not only physically as well, it protects the body a little more moving on the clay, but it builds a stronger base, stronger legs, and it makes you a smarter tennis player by having to work harder to finish points. And I think in the long run through junior development, that's really important. And that's why you see a lot of the national associations putting clay in. Okay. And um, the, the coaching carousel has been the theme in the women's tennis. It happens a lot in the men's tennis too. But uh, late, the, the latest addition is, uh, I think, Sasha Bajan co- coaching Kiki Mladenovic. So you think yeah. there's a honeymoon period in there, like when there's a new partnership <clears throat> happens, there's results start following. Uh, what's, the tra- <laughs> what's the tracking meter in this? Or is it just like the other situation was so bad, now there are results? Uh, how do you assess? Because you're in the business. How do you assess a successful partnership? Uh, first few weeks, do you discount that or uh, fill us No, in? you don't, don't discount anything. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you're right. I think there's a little bit of a honeymoon period because everybody's pumped up, right? You start with a new coach and everybody's enthusiastic and you're going out there and you're really pumped to get out there and make stuff happen in the practice and it's new and exciting. So, yeah, I, I think a honeymoon period is a fair call. How long that lasts, I, I'm not sure. It might be three to six months maybe. But I think really if you're judging a coach's performance, you have to, have to judge them on a 12-month performance. And because that's what the rankings are, right? So after 12 months, if you, let's say, step in and you're coaching someone. Yeah, so when I first started with Simona, she was number five in the world. I stepped in. uh, I was helping the team. And she won Indian Wells. So she went from five to two on the back of one tournament. Now, I can't say I took her to number two in the world because I'd only been there for one week. So I think you can only really judge a coach's performance after 12 months and when that particular coach has earned the points that are sitting on that player's ranking for those 12 months. Okay. So yeah, I think yeah, that kind of does make sense, but uh, I couldn't resist the temptation because a lot of times you see these results piling up. But as a coach, you're right. You know, every result does count. So yeah. So any other player that, you know, in the lower ranks that, you know, that is in your attention radar you want to share before we switch to the men? Is there anyone... What about, uh, what about Bianca Andreescu? Is she going to be ready to play? I haven't looked at the draw, but I think she's playing Paris, right? I know she's been injured and she hasn't had any clay court lead-up uh, matches because of an injury, but what she was able to do during the hard courts in Indian Wells and Miami was pretty spectacular. So I'm looking forward to seeing how she goes for the rest of the year. Let's leave her as a wild card. Absolutely. So let's uh, switch gears to the ATP side of things. And uh, uh, they're the top two, and then there's everyone at least... Uh, uh, Matt Zemek believes yep. it's uh, Nadal, Djokovic, then it's uh, Dominic Team, then Wawrinka, then the field. How how do you see that? Uh, Matt knows his <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> like, I think so. I, I think that um, to go past Novak or, or 
Rafa at the moment would be pretty silly. Those two guys have proven to be the two best clay court players for the last few years. I know Dominic made it through to the final last year and he would be my uh, number three tip as well. Um, but there's so much riding uh, on this one. For Rafa, it's number 12. It's amazing what he's been able to accomplish, but it's the Novak thing that all eyes are on and, and whether or not that he can hold all four Grand Slam trophies again at the same time. It would be the second time in his career that he would have been able to do that. Uh, Novak Slam number that would two. Be incredible. Yet no other player in this generation has, has been able to do that once. It's uh, He's already in the conversation as an all-time great and maybe one of the best ever. That's certainly going to push him uh, pretty much to the top of that list if he's able to do that. So there's a lot riding on uh, Novak winning this Grand Slam. I, I'm sure he knows that. I'm sure that a little bit of the Rome final was he was tired. He got hosed by the, the schedule playing the night matches. Um, he got stuck in a couple of long matches as well. So physically, he wasn't at his best uh, against Rafa. Rafa did what he had to do. And it was great for Rafa's confidence that he knocked off Novak going into the French Open. But I think we'll see a different Novak throughout the course of the, the French Open. He's going to be a little more efficient in the early rounds try not to get himself stuck in long matches and have as much energy as he can for that possible uh, Nadal-Djokovic final. Uh, I would love to see it. As much as I'd love to see somebody else come through, uh, because I think we need it on the men's side to start to see some other names come through and push for Grand Slam titles for this particular tournament, I would love to see a Nadal-Djokovic final. You know, this, this match could be you know one of the big... Probably the biggest match if this does happen because Djokovic, like you said, is going for his second Novak slam. And if Nadal wins number 18, I think this is the closest uh, yep. Federer-Nadal gap yep. would have ever been because, you know, they, they have been the difference of three for so many years. And I don't think it was ever a difference of two. So, yeah, either way, we are going to have yep. new, new waters in men tennis. So... Exactly. Everything changes, right? That's what it feels like. It's, and, and who knows? Maybe Roger will come through and, and put some more separation and win number 21. Uh, I wouldn't put it past Federer to do that. Uh, there, there are so many differences or permutations that can actually happen that sort of change our thinking about, okay, who is the greatest player of all time and where does Novak stand on this list? And is Nadal going to overtake Federer? And, oh, my God, is Federer even capable of doing what he's doing at 37 years of age? And when will some of the young guns come through and actually start winning some of these tournaments? You know, there's so many great storylines in tennis that we're really looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. And uh, just let's stay one more question on Djokovic. So what he's about to do or what he's already done is, uh, you know, really astounding. I mean, astonishing stuff what Djokovic has done. But do you think uh, what he was saying in Indian Wells in Miami that he's focusing on majors, but he looked pretty strong in Madrid. So you think at this stage an elite player can go through these motions where he'll definitely show up for the majors, but after so many matches it's just sometimes hard to be there 110% like this guy is for every single tournament? And he's also the president yeah, well, of the that... council, so that doesn't help. I guess he's been pretty occupied. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I think during Indian Wells in Miami, it was... He, he did look tired, no question, and I think he spoke in the press about having some other stuff on his on his mind that maybe took some of his energy and couldn't quite give the same type of energy uh, towards those matches. He's not young either, so I think that once you get over 30, you have to start to be a little bit smarter about the tour, how many tournaments you play, when you peak, and certainly peaking for the Grand Slams is going to be his big um, interest. So... 
it wasn't that overly surprising for me after seeing what he did at the Australian Open, coming through and winning that, to take the foot off the gas a little bit. Okay, go into those tournaments maybe a little underprepared. I, I don't think he went there thinking, okay, I'm not going to win these events. I think a player like that still goes into India Wells and Miami thinking, okay, I can make this happen. I know I'm a little bit behind the eight ball, but if things go well for me, I can still make this happen. But maybe got caught a little bit short. But as long as he's ready for the Grand Slams, as long as he's in peak physical condition and also mentally fresh, I think that's what it's all about when you get to, to his age and after you've accomplished what he's accomplished. And I don't think it's any different for Rafa or Roger as well. I think they're exactly the same. I think we've seen them plan their schedules over the last three or four years to make sure they are peaking for the Grand Slams. And, uh, and Nadal, you know, like you said, this win was very important because this, otherwise he would yep. have been... Yep going into French Open for the first time without a title and, you know, second time without a clay title. So he put those doubts yep. to rest. And I believe uh, Novak yep. has had the better of him in the last few years. I think to him, in, in my opinion, my humble opinion, this match means a lot more to Nadal because had he lost to Djokovic, then I think doubts would have been at an all-time high if yep. they were to face off in the French final. Oh, no question. The Rome final was really important for Rafa and and he went out there with a clear purpose that nothing but a win today. And you love that about him. And you could see it by the urgency in which he played. So I agree 100% with you. I think that he really needed the win. And okay, maybe it wouldn't have made a massive difference to what happens in, in Paris in a couple of weeks. But just for his confidence, just for feeling the ball, knowing that he was feeling the forehand. I, I think after he played Tsitsipas, he was incredibly happy with the way he felt the forehand because he knew that when he was hitting his forehand, he was pushing Sitsipas back far enough behind the court where he felt like he couldn't hurt him. And he didn't have that feeling in Madrid. Completely different conditions, obviously, but he didn't have that feeling the last time they played, but now he had it. And the conditions that they play in in Rome are much more similar to the conditions they play at the French Open. So I think Rafa will go into the French Open really excited, really confident. Uh, we know that he gains an extra leg every time he turns up at Roland Garros. Uh, for me, he's still the player to beat, but between he and Novak, there's not much separating Okay, them. so let's talk about the field then. Uh, the draw is still a few days uh, away from now, but based on the yep. clay court form, is Dominic Team the best man, best chance from the field to stop this party from happening? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's earned that right uh, with his performances last year and his performances on clay, even uh, winning a big tournament this year as well. He's earned the right to be the third favourite. Uh, I think that Sitsipas has been good enough to be able to throw a cat amongst the pigeons, uh, which has been wonderful for the men's game. And the way he plays is a little bit different to the way a lot of the younger generation guys play. He's not scared to come forward. He's not scared to throw some different stuff at these top players. And he actually walks on the court with a real... Not an arrogance, but he sort of pushes his shoulders back and he looks like he feels like he belongs on the court against these top players. And, and that's really important because I think through the last couple of generations of taking on these top players, they've been a bit intimidated by not only the way they play, but also the names. And so they feel like they're down a break before they even step on the court. To me, Sitsipas doesn't have that. He has a real mojo uh, when he steps onto the court or a, um, a strut, which is, is great to see. Uh, the one player I'd watch out for, though, is Del Potro. I know that Clay's not his best surface. Uh, he's incredibly fresh at the moment. He's coming back from injuries. But the way he played against Novak in Rome has to give him massive confidence going into Paris. And he also made the semifinals there last year, played a pretty good match against Nadal. So just watch out for one. If he makes it through that first week, anything could happen because he's the type of guy that has a big enough game 
to knock off one of these big players. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, spend a little bit of time on Tsitsipas. My question is, uh, his rise has been so impressive and his all-court game and he's someone who's coming to the net. So you think uh, there was a notion when Federer was coming, he was struggling against Nalbandian and Hewitt because they said his game would take a little more time to develop and mature. But Tsitsipas has shown yep. in the last 10 months that he's right up there. So you think that's also a byproduct yep. of how the tour is? Uh, most players, except the veterans, say Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, most players find it hard to deal with the variety that Tsitsipas possesses. You think there's something to do with that? Yeah, because there's not many players that play that style, right? Uh, no one's really coming forward and playing that type of game. So the last 10 years, uh, they haven't had to deal with it all that often. So when you have someone who's prepared to come forward, prepared to junk the ball a little bit, prepared to play some drop shots, uh, volleys pretty well, mixes up the serve, throws in a little bit of serve and volley, a little bit unpredictable. And so when you have that type of player, no one's had a great deal of practice against that type of player. So it's going to take a little bit of time for them to figure him out. And he's playing a style of tennis which is a little bit old school, to be honest. It goes back to when we kind of played is that, okay, he's not necessarily looking to get to the net all the time, but he's not scared to do it. He's not scared to run to the net from bad positions on the court. Um, but he's trying to make something happen all the time. He's just not sitting back getting involved in these long rallies and being content to, to keep the rally going and not miss and just waiting to see what happens. He's trying to make something happen, and you can see that by the way he plays. That's why he's fun to watch. Yeah, and definitely he's heading in the right direction, his ranking and game, so he's all he's very good for the game. Uh, so yep. would you put Wawrinka like Matt Zemek is putting, or would you put Federer somewhere in the mix as well? I, I would put Federer above Stan at the moment. I, I think that... I know it's a big question mark over Roger. Uh, the way he played in those two clay court matches was pretty good. A little bit rusty on the clay, but he grew up on clay. He spent years and years being the second best clay quarter in the world. If it wasn't for Rafa, he may have won seven or eight French Open singles titles as well. He was that good on clay. So he knows the surface. He's very comfortable on the surface. Um, for him to go deep and have a chance of winning this, I think he needs the sun shining. And the courts need to be pretty quick. And so he can find a way to finish points, to play aggressively, to work his way to the net, to play the same type of style that we've seen him the last two or three years that has kept him at the top of the game. If it becomes overcast and cloudy and a little bit damp, um, finding ways to finish the points is going to be a lot more difficult for him. And obviously he'll have to do a lot more defending and a lot more running. And through the course of a tournament, that makes it difficult. What, what, is the, what is the forecast for the two weeks in Paris? Have you guys had a chance to, to see what we can expect? Uh, I honestly haven't seen, but I've heard. I think it's good. Oh, I've given you a red card. <laughs> Matt should have been all over that and given you that, that forecast going into Paris. I'm sure he knows, but he hasn't given you yeah, Absolutely, but I'll take the blame myself because I should have had known this. But Okay. <laughs> all right, so uh, one more on Federer. You think uh, the decision to play clay this year is more strategic that he said last year too much grass, you tend to block returns? And when you play on clay, you drive yep. through the ball more. And, of course, the guy takes himself very yep. seriously. So you think it's a collective decision? Is it a good buy? We don't know. But what's your instinct? I mean, this is like uh, why he chose to play this time, not last year or the year before. Honestly, I don't see it as a good buy. I don't see him retiring anytime soon. He's playing so well. And he looks, I know he's 37. He looks like he's about 27. Um Unless something happens with an injury or he has a couple of setbacks, he's still capable of winning these major tournaments, and I haven't seen any drop-off at all. So the great thing about clay is that you have to hit so many tennis balls that normally, if you can get through the clay season and you're not too beat up physically, you actually build a lot of confidence going into the grass court season. 
and you start to feel the timing much quicker and you start seeing the ball like a basketball, the transition is not that bad. So I think that's what he's got in the back of his mind also is to do a lot of work on the clay, uh, hit a lot of tennis balls, build that confidence, play aggressively, play a type of style that's going to be effective on the grass looking forward and see how it goes and, and see if he can get his way through to the second week in Paris. If he can get his way through to the second week in Paris, watch out because a confident Federer is a dangerous Yeah, Federer. especially if he doesn't put too many miles in the first week. And again, draw, draw's going exactly. to be huge. Uh, and then Sasha Zverev yep. is another guy who should be in the mix. He is, according to me, but he's entered Geneva. Uh, I see that's as a yep. panic sign, but then again, a lot of times players need matches. So if you were coaching him, would yep. you advise him to play the week before a major or those are just myths that fans discuss? As long as... I wouldn't be giving Ivan Lendl any advice <laughs> because he knows best. So... I, I would stay away from that. You know, he's just, I think he's, you know how I said a little bit about the Sitsipas issue where he's willing to throw some different stuff at his opponents and that's why he's been a little difficult to play for the top guys and he's getting those results is that Alex is just a bit too predictable at the moment and, and as good as he is, I think he's a better player than Sitsipas. If they play 10 times, I think Zverev would win that match maybe seven or eight times out of 10. But just at the moment, playing against the top guys, the top guys know what he's going to do. And they know what he's capable of. And they know that he's not transitioning forward. He's not looking for the short balls. And as good as he is from the back of the court, these other guys are just a little bit better. And that's what makes it difficult for him to break through. So I don't think he's quite ready to break through just yet. But I think that Ivan will have him on the right track to do it uh, a year or two down you know, the track. It's so refreshing and so, you know, such a validation for me that you said that because in my friend circle... You know, there's a lot of recency effect. The guys are super knowledgeable, but they were all saying, no, it's, you know, Felix Oji Aliasim has a higher ceiling than Tsitsipas. And then their writings <laughs> wear off. I'm saying, dude, you, you have to just, you know, get, get the yeah. guy through a bad season because that's all part of growing, you know, in, in top tennis. You Correct. know, you have the bad season, then you rise again. So it's kind of Correct. A good validation in my world that you said Zverev is so much better. And I still have a lot of hope. I think he's going to win sooner than later, but... Uh, the evolution, I think, sometimes takes place. And, uh, and yeah. rounding off the conversation for the young guys, Nick Kyrgios says a lot of crazy things, but he said something very important in the interview. <laughs> that when I go to the court against Roger, Novak, and Rafa, I respect them off the court, but on the court, I don't have to respect them. You think that's a factor that sometimes that's missing in some guys, that they're just not yeah. able to get over the hump in the best-of-five format or some major matches? Yeah, to a po certain point, I, I said that a little bit about Sitsipas is that he, he has a swagger when he walks onto the court and is not scared of taking on the, the top guys. And you're right, there, there's been a generation or a couple of generations of players that have respected what these top guys have done so much. And it's hard not to as well because they've been so dominant that they are down a break or two before they even step onto the court because they're not only playing the player, they're playing the, the tradition of the player and the history of the player and what they've been able to do. So... Nick is completely different. Look, you, you go turn right, Nick will turn left. Uh, he's wired very differently to what most people are. And I don't know if it's right or if it's wrong, but some of the good stuff he has is that he's not scared of playing these top players. He is confident in his own ability. He knows that if he plays an aggressive style of tennis and he's feeling his game, he can mix it with anyone on the court. And he saves himself for the top guys. And I think that's what frustrates the top guys a little bit is you can watch Nick, watch Nick on an outside court playing against Casper Ruud. And he's just messing around out there in Rome and going through the motions. And you think, oh, my God, you know, if this guy does this against me, um, this should be a pretty easy match. But you know he's not going to do that. 
if he steps on centre court and he's playing one of the top guys, he's going to bring his very best. And actually, just having a look at the rankings, he's ranked 36 at the moment. Only 32 guys get seeded at the French Open. There's not one of the seeds that will want to take on Nick uh, in that first round. So he's certainly going to be a dangerous floater uh, moving through to that yeah, draw. He's absolutely a nightmare first round for any of the top players because, you know, he'll show yeah. up for that one. Uh, and Correct. then uh, there are a lot of other players like Karen Hachinov made his move, but then he switched rackets. He's kind of coming into his own in the clay season, hasn't won much, but <clears> has looked good. Then there's Lucas Poy, yep. who won a challenger and then yep. still struggling to win matches after that uh, great run in Australia. Uh, what are some of the other players who think who can come out of nowhere and just make a major presence here? Is, uh, are there any names that uh, you are following and would, would like to share with, with our audience here? Yeah, look, I think Medvedev may be the most underrated player in the ATP Tour. No one talks about him. Uh, he's an incredible ball striker. He's had a pretty good year. He's ranked 14 in the world, can you believe? And, and no one gives him a chance at any single tournament. So I think Medvedev de deserves to be uh, mentioned in those same names when you talk about Zverev and Tsitsipas and that younger generation coming through. Uh, Medvedev, uh, he's only 23 years of age. Um, so he's certainly someone that I would watch out for. He's, if he has a good draw... Uh, he can cause a lot of damage. I think uh, Basilashvili is uh, 27 years of age, is a great ball striker as well. Same thing goes. If he gets a good draw, he's going to be a tough out. Uh, same thing with the man. If you go through the unseeded players, uh, it, it is there's a lot of players there that can cause a lot of damage. That's why I think the draw of the French Open is going to be so interesting to see. Uh, Dimitrov is sitting outside the rank at the seedings at the moment at 40-47. I see he went and played qualifying of Geneva this week to get a couple of wins and a couple of matches, and he's got a new coach in Radek Stepanek. If Grigor can start to get it going again, who knows what he can do. So, yeah, it's some great storylines in the men's game. And then uh, there's a Chilean player, Christian Garin, kind of making a lot of waves. Yeah, he's yeah. another guy who I yeah. think uh, will be under under the watch, and then uh, they're yeah, veterans sure like David Goffin. So yeah, the field field's going to be pretty pretty tough. So what are some of the other things that you want to share with the audience that's so special about the French Open? Why it's so, such a tough tournament to win? Is there any any insights you want to share with our listeners here? Well, Nadal makes it an incredibly Aye. tough tournament to win, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you take you take Nadal out, and uh, oh my God, uh, French um, clay court tennis would be a little bit different. Come on, like, the men are coming. I should have said second place. The greatest, yeah, the greatest clay court player the, the game has ever seen. My, you know, my idol growing up was Bjorn Borg. Uh, I love Borg. Uh, I thought the way he played, the way he moved, the, the grace that he had on the court. For me, he was fascinating. And obviously the Borg-McEnroe uh, matchups were, were, for me, the greatest ever. Uh, as a 10-year-old, I'd stay up to 3 or 4 in the morning to watch the Borg-McEnroe matches at Wimbledon um, and, and dream about possibly walking on that court again, like every youngster does. The fact that Nadal's been able to... What, what did Borg win six French Opens, yes. I believe? Uh, and just 25 years of age. Uh, the, the fact that Nadal's been able to win 11 French Opens, it's even scary just to say the number. So... Whenever you talk about French Open tennis, you have to talk about Rafa Nadal. That's the first two words that come out of anybody's lips because he owns that event. And so going into that one, that's the first major problem everybody has to deal with. I've spoken about it a couple of times also. The weather will play an important um, as to how the weather is, as to how the draw opens up and who has a little advantage in certain matches. It's going to play a big part in how the draw looks after the first week. 
Um, if it'll even go down to the fight, let's say Novak and Rafa play in the final, I think the weather in that match will make a massive difference. If it's a dry, sunny day, I think Nadal takes a real significant advantage into that final if they play in the final. If it's an overcast and, and a little bit moist and the court's pretty slow, I think Novak has the advantage. So that's how much mm. the weather can make a difference to one match. Uh, do balls make a difference? Because I know there was a year in 2011 when Federer beat Djokovic, there was a lot of noise that Babalat have some yeah. lighter balls and it made a huge difference. And uh, do you think uh, yeah. those things uh, come into the equation and do they change every year? Yeah, no, I haven't noticed that for the last few years. So I know for that first year that they went to that Babylon ball, it did feel like a bit of a super ball that was bouncing all over the place. But I think everything has calmed down now. The ball they've used there for the last four or five years feels pretty normal. So the ball doesn't make a big difference to it this year, I would imagine. And uh, for, I mean, of all the majors, you come from a country that hosts its own major. Uh, there's always this perception that uh, the home crowd in, in Paris, they get behind their own, but it's also been one of the toughest acts to follow if you're Sanga or Garcia yeah. or Pui or Momfis. Uh, yeah. any, any word on the locals? Uh, do you see anyone shining, at least making a second, second week appearance on either side? Yeah, I would have said Pui after what he did at the Australian Open, but he's really struggled since then. He actually struggled before the Aussie Open and he struggled since then as well, but um, maybe he's doing exactly what you were talking about. He's saving himself for the Grand Slams and he's going to uh, build that confidence and do well there as well. I, I think historically the French have struggled a little bit at the French Open to, to play their best tennis. So Joe made a pretty good run there a couple of years ago and made it through to the semifinals, but all in all... You know, Gasquet's avoided the French Open a couple of times because of the fact that he's felt the pressure about playing uh, in France. So uh, this particular year, I don't think we'll see a Frenchman going too deep in the tournament, which is a little bit sad for the locals. But uh, I'm sure in the first week, they'll still give us plenty to, to smile about because they do bring a lot of flair to the court. All right, Darren. So let's wrap this up by getting a couple of questions on uh, the tennis governance. I know we've really enjoyed this yeah. conversation so far. So uh, do you believe tennis and uh, boat tours uh, can use a union or maybe a commissioner the way you know, tennis politics has been all over the map? Do you think that could be the answer, like some of the American sports you know, have as a commissioner and a union? Yeah, to talk about the tennis governance, you need a couple of hours to, to get to the bottom of it. it, it it's, it's incredibly difficult, and it's the way the ATP formed its tour back in 1988. They launched in 1990, and it's a joint venture with the tournament directors. So as you know, at the moment, on the directors on the board, there are three appointed by the players and then three appointed by the tournament directors. And then we have a CEO, and quite often the CEO has to vote for the player side or has to vote for the tournament side or doesn't vote at all. So it's a bit of a flawed system, right? Because the players are not necessarily in business with the tournaments. They're against the tournaments. They're trying to drag a little more prize money out of the tournaments. And then the tournaments are trying to exist and, and have control over what tournaments are on the calendar. So if you're going down the path of having commissioner, I'm all in. But doing that, basically, you'd have to blow up the tour and start again. And with that, there's going to be all sorts of problems because what the tournaments own at the moment is a week on the calendar. And that week on the calendar is worth an incredible amount of money. So if you blow up the tour, all of a sudden you're taking away an asset which those tournaments have built up over the last 20 or 30 years. So it's incredibly difficult. I think that's what Novak has gone down the path of maybe forming a union to see if they can have a little more say about what's happening for the players in the, in the players' best interests. I'm not sure a union would work but maybe even appointing someone above the CEO position. Uh, I don't know who that new CEO will be, but if there's someone appointed above that, like a chairman that sits above that, that can be independent from the tournaments and also from the players, 
And that person basically is a commissioner, but maybe as a chairman can make decisions for the game that are in the game's best interest, not necessarily for the tournaments or the players, but in the game's best interest, then I think we're on the right path. But at the moment, yeah, it's tough. And I think that's why it's been difficult for Novak is to get his head around what is best for the game and for the players. And at the moment, you're basically fighting a fight with one hand tied behind your back. Okay, so we come to the conclusion. The last question is from one of our staff members, Skip Schwartzman. He wants to remind you or maybe ask you, does Julian Krinsky have the flickiest forehead you've ever seen? Uh, who's Julian that? Krinsky. Uh, do you remember him? Julian, Julian Krinsky. Uh, do I know Julian? I, I believe he's uh, played Davis Cup for South Africa. and. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm a long way yeah. back, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, a beautiful forehand. Actually, great disguise on the forehand and lots of spin. Can put the ball to all parts of the court. In fact, I tried to model my forehand after his when I saw it. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> He's a good I guess man. You, you no, were playing sure. at uh, Alters. Okay, that's the memory. Yes, that's right. Dennis okay, Alters, you exactly. You, know, you, you threw me for a curve. Sorry, I, I should have asked you this generation. before, but this was he's, a question I thought. He's very much old generation, but a good man. And uh, yeah, I miss him a lot. He's in the Philadelphia area as well, but miss him a lot. So he's who, a good man. So who haven't seen him describe in maybe a couple of words, what is a flicky forehand here? Is, is it like a wood racket forehand or is this more <laughs> like a Federer <laughs> flick? Or? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, it's all wrist, baby. It's all okay. wrist. Uh, but you got you to have great timing and good eyes to, to be able to make that forehand for sure. All right, Darren. That... Can I just say on the governance part Absolutely, of things as well, uh, as, you go, as you guys know, uh, I ran for the to be a director uh, on the ATP board back in March. And I know it's got a lot of publicity over the last um, uh, couple of months as well. Um, it's complicated. And I think that even the process they're going through at the moment – what the players are doing within the player council and also electing people to represent them on the player board, you have to get it right because we are in a situation at the moment where it's a golden era for tennis. And a lot of these prize money increases that we've had, I know the CEO has done a great job for the ATP, but you have to give a lot of credit to Novak, to Roger, to Rafa and to Andy who waltzed into the Grand Slams a number of years ago and said, hey, boys, Come on, you've got to do better because um, you guys are increasing your profits year after year and the prize money is not moving at the same rate. And to the Grand Slam's credit, they've increased the prize money through the roof the last five or six years and it continues to improve. So we're in a golden era of negotiation and strength and power and being able to take tennis to a whole new level. So I don't – I'm a big Chris Commode supporter and maybe I didn't interview well, maybe – um, I'd hit the wrong marks, uh, maybe because I said that I thought Chris was doing a pretty good job when it's a difficult position to be in. Didn't go over that well when I did the actual interview. But I actually have no problem if they want to go left and do something different and do what we just spoke about, appoint a chairman or a commissioner or someone that's going to represent the players in a stronger fashion. That's great. I would fully support that as well. But to remove Chris and basically just do the same, just replace him with uh, another CEO who's going to be in the same position, dealing with the same problems. Um, I thought Chris was doing a pretty damn good job and had built up a lot of great relationships uh, with the tournaments and increased the prize money a lot through the ATP over the last five or six years. So the problem I had a little bit is, okay, if we're going to make that change, what's the plan? No, that, that was all. No, that, that's so, fair enough. And I, I think I do side with what yeah. you're saying. But just to throw in the counter argument, a lot of folks believe he still had one of the longest tenures as the leader of the ATP. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. change is also a good direction. But like you said, do we, we need to 
be a little more transparent to, to learn about those changes, Correct. I guess. Correct, exactly. So that's fine as well. Okay, um, Chris has been there for a number of years. He's done a great job for us. It's time to move on and we're going to get uh, somebody else. And this is the person that we've earmarked to uh, that we believe is going to take us to the new, uh, the promised land. But there's no one in place to do that. So, uh, okay, you can go out and headhunt somebody, which is great. And I hope they do that. And I hope they get a great person to do that. But I think the frustration comes in that the plan wasn't communicated great to the players and also the public, obviously. And that's why there's been a little frustration around it. I actually don't mind the process or what they're thinking about too much and especially if they're looking to go a little bit left field but just the communication as to okay where are we actually going with this what are we doing and what plan is in place i think that's where it caused a little bit of frustration with some of the other players yeah, absolutely and tennis is like very unlike other sports because other sports are team sports and they have one governing body so tennis has its own you know so many ways of <coughs> like you said to undo you know sometimes it's not it's a complex sport to follow yeah. even for us who spend like 46 weeks you know behind computer screens and just following scores uh, sometimes we don't have the simplest of answers when a non-tennis friend asks, hey, what's going on? You know, is, is ATP sure. different than Grand Slam and what is Davis Cup and, you know, vice versa. So, so, yep. so yeah, I yep. mean, again, I can go on forever, but I just, you know, want to respect your time. I know uh, you are, uh, your day starting in Australia. Thanks for doing this. It was wonderful. I learned a lot. I hope I fed some questions that, you know, were very mindful of your time and you, you enjoyed Excellent. Excellent. All right. Good stuff, mate. Thanks Absolutely. for your time. Thanks for listening. So, Saka, congratulations on your interview uh, of Darren Kao. I thought you did a tremendous job and uh, definitely a wonderful moment for, for our site and specifically for podcast that you've cultivated over the last few years. So you've been able to ask a lot of questions over almost uh, one and a half hours. So now let me ask you uh, a question as we, as we look at uh, Rowan Garros, starting with the women. You know, so we're recording this podcast before the draw. So what comes out for our listeners, what are going to be the questions, the main points that you keep in mind uh, in terms of where specific players, in terms of quarterfinalists and uh, who who gets the same quarter, who's in the separate quarter, things like that. Uh, I mean, the draw is still, you know, to be made. Uh, but, uh, you know, if the weather stays hot, like Darren Kale mentioned, you know, like it can be good for players like you know Petra Kvitova, Naomi Osaka, who can flatten the ball out. Uh, so yeah, there are like more than few players. Uh, he thinks it's a, a lot deeper, but I think there are more than few players who could win this thing. And uh, in my opinion, you know, Simona Halep not winning a title could just you know uh, propel her to to the same heights. Kiki Burton's playing the tennis of her life, and. Uh, uh, you, you, I mean, draw is going to be huge. And Serena Williams is someone you cannot ever rule out. I know this sounds like a cliche, but, you know, it's only her health that's been getting in her way. Otherwise, she really hasn't lost a proper match for a long time. There's always some sort of a uh, health issue. So, yeah, if her body is ready, I'm sure mind-wise she's fresh. She wants this. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the women draw has its own story. I think there are more women who can actually win this thing compared to uh, the men's side. Uh, but uh, I'll be keenly following uh, Kiki Burton's and uh, Petra Kvitova's uh, story because Petra has had a very solid year and she's someone who's never too strong a contender on clay just by her glorious resume. I think this could be the chance where 
if the draw is kind and she finds her game, she could make a deep run. Uh, do you want to add any other names, Matt, uh, to besides these three uh, or four names that I took in terms of, uh, you know, maybe a Benchich or Andreescu uh, or maybe a seasoned campaigner like Kerber? What, what are some of the names that come to your mind before the draw is announced? Yeah, so I don't really have names so much as, you know, this. I, I'm more focused on the structure of the draw. Uh, I do agree with you that Kvitova has a real shot. Given, given how consistent she's been on tour this year. But, I mean, the main things for, for our li- audience to consider, and you know, if they are listening to this podcast after the draw has been announced, you know, the main thing is that when Pliskova won Rome, she moved all the way up to the number two seed. And what that did is it put Ber- Bertens and Halep uh, at three and four. So Bertens and Hallett, really the two best choices, the two foremost favorites, because they're seated third and fourth, they are going to be in opposite halves of the draw. So you know, usually you think of number one and number two as being in opposite halves, but it's just the same for number three and number four. You also get put in the opposite halves. So it, it's, it works out great that Hallett and Bertens uh in opposite halves. So to me, the big question of the draw, Sakib, is where will Sloan Stevens and Ash Barty fall in, in terms of uh, the specific quarters? You know, if, if they are going to fall in the quarters of Halep and Bertens, so let's say uh, it's Sloan and Halep in uh, one quarter and uh, Bertens uh, gets uh, Barty uh, in, in her quarter, then you know those are going to be two very contentious quarters of the draw, and then the other quarters, let's say um, Osaka uh, and Kerber and uh, and uh, Pliskova gets uh, the other um, players seated five through eight that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, so you know th- those quarters of the draw uh, would be more open. And then on the other hand, let's say that uh, Halep and Bertens get players other than Stevens and Barty, then I think you could come up with a scenario where Halep, Bertens, Stevens, and Barty would be the four foremost favorites uh, at the tournament. So where Stevens and Barty land relative to Halep and Bertens, that should be the main thing for people to watch uh, when when the women's draw comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's pretty similar to the situation where I think uh, Dominic team lands, I think, uh, in what half of the draw. Uh, I think by that measure, mm-hmm. and I think even Darren Kale agreed, like he has the best chance. He's, he represents the best chance from the field from preventing, uh, you know, Anole and a Rafa final. Of course, anything can happen. Lightning can strike, but, you know, given the form of the two and the best of five format, uh, if we just quickly look at the men's side, and uh, you've all, always had Darren, uh, uh, Dominic team as number three, but now with the draw looming large. Uh, who do you think he matches up? Uh, uh, I don't know. He's lost to both men at Roland Garros. He's beaten Djokovic when Djokovic wasn't pl- playing his great, you know, greatest tennis. But who, who do you? Uh, where, where would he make more of an impact? You know, in what half? You think? I know it's all premature, but since we are, you know, trying to get opinions on this platform, uh, talk a little bit about team in that regard. The same way you broke the structure on the women's side. Yeah. So you know. It, it, uh, 
I think you'd have, and this isn't really a commentary on Djokovic's current form because Djokovic's current form is definitely good enough to win Roland Garros. And, you know, Darren Kale, who, you know, he wasn't born yesterday. He's been around the block. He knows how things work. He, he knows that Djokovic didn't come into that Rome final with adequate rest, uh, that it wasn't really a, a, a balanced situation so you know Djokovic's form is fine the fact that Djokovic was able to win a set off Rafa despite having the rest disadvantage it puts them basically on the same plane you know there's very little separation between Djokovic and Rafa Djokovic is playing really well right now his current form is fine but you know in terms of your question where can team do more damage purely based on Roland Garros maybe not so much on the this 2019 clay season but certainly um, based on Roland Garros history, it's Djokovic. You know, Djokovic team has been able to beat Djokovic at Roland Garros. Uh, he hasn't been able to do the same with Rafa. He hasn't won a set off Rafa at Roland Garros. So, you know, that, that it, there's a clear gulf in terms of best of three versus best of five versus Rafa uh, for Dominic team when he makes the switch from Madrid or Rome where he's had some success against Nadal. He's beaten him in both of those cities, also beaten him in Barcelona now uh, after his win uh, uh, you know, several weeks ago. Um, there's a clear gulf between uh, beating Rafa in best of three and doing well against him in best of five, whereas team has already beaten Djokovic in best of five. And of course, Djokovic you know, was injured. He wasn't um, nearly close to full health two years ago when team did him uh, in the quarterfinals. Nevertheless, that is a memory, and that's an experience that team will carry on to the court should he play Djokovic, you know, which which differentiates uh, that from Rafa. So I think that uh, team being in um, Djokovic's half uh, would offer the slightly better odds of busting up a potential Raffle final. And so to continue this conversation about, you know, now that we've segued to the, the men for, for Roland Garros, the thing that people need to watch in the draw when it's released is will Rafa or Djokovic get not just team in their half, but also Sitsipas or Delpo in their quarter. So let's say one player, whether it's Novak or Rafa gets a quarterfinal against Sitsipas or Delpo, and then a semifinal against Team. If one player has to deal with both, I'm not really talking about one or the other. I'm talking about both together. If one player has to deal with both of those players in subsequent rounds, uh, that could be a recipe for playing really long matches in both a quarterfinal and a semifinal, which would leave that player a little bit more worn down. Uh, in the possible final. So in other words, if one of those players, Djokovic or Nadal, plays you know, one tough match in the quarters or semis, it's not that big a deal to me. But if one has to deal with both Stipas or Delpo, you know, possibly like a three-and-a-half, four-hour quarterfinal, and then team and, and all the, the, the difficulties that match might involve, then that player could be a little bit punched out uh, in a possible final. But if but if uh, Novak or Rafa just has to play one especially tough opponent in in, in the final stages uh, before the final, I don't think it'll matter too much. So that's really the thing. 
Will one player get saddled with an especially tough draw? And, you know, you also have to throw into the mix Stan. You know, what if one player, uh, Rafa or Nole gets, Nole gets to play uh, Vafrinka in the round of 16, Sitsipas or Delpo in the quarters, team in the semis? You know, if one player has to deal with all of those matchups, then the other player would definitely get the edge as the favorite um, heading into the tournament. So that that's those are the kinds of things that people need to consider uh, once the draw is revealed at Roland Garros. I think well said. Those are the mini plots within the big plot. And, you know, that just uh, I'll wrap uh, this conversation with a thought just kind of echoing what you said. So that means for Roger Federer. Uh, the best possible quarterfinal opponent could be either Nishikori or Sasha Zverev, given all things that we discuss, correct? <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you know, th- th- this is an interesting question. You know, is Federer a favorite? He's obviously not a top-tier favorite. That's Djokovic and Nadal. He's obviously not a, a second-tier favorite the way team is. But if you give Federer uh, a Zverev or Nish- Nishikori quarter, as you've just accurately noted, and... Federer lands in Djokovic's half when Djokovic has to play Stan in the in the round of 16 and Tsitsipas or Delpo in the quarters. Then, then under that series of circumstances, you could certainly see a path for Federer to get to the final. So obviously, when the draw comes out, we'll see if Federer gets that kind of path. Maybe he'll get the worst possible situation. But, you know, with the, with a specific draw, not just in his own quarter, but also for the player he's, whose half he has to share, uh, you know, let's say Federer does get Djokovic's half and Djokovic's quarter is a real minefield. Well, you could at least envision a scenario in which you could make a really deep run. So um, Federer is not a, sec- a first tier or second tier favorite, but you, there, is a, there is a draw path out there for him. Uh, to do really well, and we'll see if he gets that draw path. So that is that is part of how the draw uh, re- is going to reshape this tournament. All right, Matt. So I think uh, we should uh, conclude this conversation. Uh, let uh, hopefully uh, by the time an audience or listener has arrived here, they would have enjoyed the Darren Cahill interview. And uh, for the red card that was issued to both of us, the first five days are mostly cloudy, and there's a 15 to 20 percent chance of rain. So uh, when the tournament starts, but you know, Paris weather can also change. So let's let's hope the skies are clear when the first ball is hit and it stays that way. So this is Sakib and Matt signing off. Uh, keep supporting the podcast, share this with your friends, and a big shout out to Red Circle for producing these shows. Thank you and bye for now. <laughs>